0: I said, empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water.
1: I'm going to play like a butterfly and sing like a bee. His ears can't hit what his eyes can't see.
0: What is good, Chaos family? Welcome back to another edition of Cerebral Chaos. Man, I'm so sad that I had to miss last week, but look, I'm full of orange juice and antibodies and I'm feeling good right now. I had a really bad week and I wasn't feeling well, but I'm back on top of my game right now, back ready to give you some chaos. Quote of the week this week is going to come from Mr. Roger Crawford, who says, Being challenged in life is inevitable, but being defeated is optional. I try to approach each and every situation in life this way, and I feel like it helps. If you go all the way back to where we started on Motivation Monday, this is all about Motivation Monday wrapped up in a quote, basically. You're going to have challenges. You're going to be challenged in life. It's just all about how you respond. You could be defeated and give up and just throw in the towel, and you'll never get anything from that, or you can pick yourself up. Brush yourself off, bust the dust off, and get back to it. And that's what I suggest. So anybody listening that's feeling like you're defeated with a with a situation or an obstacle in life, you're not defeated. You can defeat any challenge set before you. Nothing is too hard for you to bear, and it would not be put on you if you could not defeat it. So there you go. Okay, this week's episode is really sentimental to me. I'm going to have one of my mentors who was one of my college professors, Dr. John Saunders, who I met uh, in my undergraduate career at Huntington College, who was my professor of communications and taught me all four years at Huntington College were basically done through his communications program. And he had such a profound impact on me on multiple levels, kind of unlocking the inner me that you see before you today, that you hear before you today. I appreciate him so much coming on. I know you guys are going to have a great time listening to his story listening to rhetoric and why, listening to how we talk about rhetoric and how we ask the questions why, which is kind of what led me to this podcast. One of the things that led me to this podcast was his way of thinking. That's how I approach the world. I always ask why. I never take just an answer for that. I always want to know why. I want to know how. When I'm looking at stuff, I'm examining it on three or four different levels, and that's just kind of all due to Dr. Saunders here. So before we get into his interview, I'm just going to give you a brief little reading here of what he wrote in one of my books. Uh, so every year when he has a graduating class, what he would do, and I think he still does it today is he takes a Dr. Seuss book and one of his favorites or his favorite is McElliott's pool. And in the front of all the books, he writes something on there. That's to that student that he's given it to. So I'm going to read you what he wrote in mine, and then we'll get into his interview. He said, D. You and I have come a long way from the first day of intro class when you asked if I would call you the Macho Man. I've seen you grapple with some complex ideas and present them with confidence and ease. Your growth has been evident. I can't wait until the day I turn on ESPN and your charismatic face is telling me all about the world of sports. I'm proud of you. John. Well, Doc, I'm not quite at ESPN yet, but we'll consider ESPN cerebral chaos for the day, so... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, one of my greatest mentors of all time, Dr. John Saunders. All right, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here with one of my mentors, Dr. John Saunders. How you doing today, Doc?
1: I'm doing pretty good.
0: (laughs) Well, first off, before we get into the nitty gritty, I wanna let you know from one of your former students, Um, I, I always appreciated the, the atmosphere for discourse and discussion that you provided to us in class. Um, I don't know if you knew how ahead of the curb you were back then doing stuff and talking about uncomfortable topics and maybe uncomfortable situations, but I really appreciated that. Looking back in retrospect, I know you had a profound impact on me. I know you've had a very profound impact on Dalen as well. So I'll speak for him on this. And I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciated you before we get going.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying
0: that. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. It means a lot to us. Um, so before we get going, just let my audience know a little bit about yourself, who you are, your your education, your skills. Let's just hear about John Sanders and who you are.
1: All right. I'm originally from Memphis, so I am a barbecue snob. Right. And music is in my very bones. I play a lot of instruments and actually build a few now. And did my BA and MA both at University of Memphis and then went to Penn State to get my PhD in rhetoric which now is one of the, the top schools for communication arts and sciences and especially rhetoric so i got to go through a top-notch program Mm -hmm. and i think since then i've been constantly trying to to earn that pedigree (laughs) to make sure that i was good enough and constantly trying to to make myself better Mm -hmm. and i've jumped around to a handful of schools and i'm currently at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and I'm teaching upper-level rhetoric courses and teaching graduate courses, all on rhetorical criticism, and I have a new (laughs) class that's coming out next year called Public Memory and Race in the South. Oh, man. Where the entire class is just about looking at Monuments, memorials, museums, historical markers, and looking at how they curate and interpret the past for a contemporary audience for future implications. Wow.
0: Man, sounds, so, that sounds exciting, man. I wish I could be a part of the class.
1: <laughs> actually, the, I taught it once as a special topics. Uh-huh. And I recorded all the classes because it was on Zoom and it was easy to do. Ah. So I had history professors. I had a communication professor from the University of Alabama who used to give an African-American heritage tour of the Alabama campus. Okay. He gave a presentation to my class. I talked to the executive director of Stacks Museum in Memphis. I talked to the adult education coordinator for the Rosa Parks Museum in Montgomery. Mm -hmm. And I videoed all of their presentations to my students. Mm -hmm. And I'm currently trying to figure out how to get those all online. Wow. So that other people can see them.
0: Yes, absolutely. I would love I would love to see it. We're definitely gonna circle back to that and we're gonna circle okay. back to this rhetorical criticism. But just I would I would like to ask kind of a general question about teaching in general. At at what point in your life did you know you wanted to teach or you wanted to do what you do as a profession? Was it something you always wanted to do as a as a child and was it your dream or how, how did you know you wanted to become a teacher?
1: Well, my mom was a teacher. Okay. And my grandfather was a teacher. Uh-huh. My great-grandfather actually taught at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville around turn of the century. Okay. So teachers are part of my DNA. Gotcha. And my dad, who is... One of the most voracious readers i've ever (laughs) known he has all of this knowledge that he just picks up all over the place and i love the idea of just knowing things
0: okay
1: i mean that's interesting to me Mm -hmm. now most people when they start doing a masters they end up teaching some classes because they get an assistantship. I didn't do that. I was only going part-time. But when I got to Penn State, to get an assistantship meant I had to teach public speaking. And to me, it was just like throwing a duck into water. I felt (laughs) normal there. And I had all of these creative ideas things that i wanted to try out Uh and my first semester i was taking a class on teaching while i was teaching two classes (laughs) and so i was one chapter ahead of my students all semester long Uh but i kept coming up with ideas that weren't in the book that to me made sense Uh And I had always been one of those in classes that I work well with analogies. So when a teacher once said, this is the easiest way I know how to present this theory. I boiled it down to a yin and a yang. And the teacher wrote it down (laughs) because she's like, (laughs) that's the simplest explanation of this theory I've ever heard. Wow. Wow. So I just had that ability once I can understand it I can put it into terms other people can understand it
0: okay yeah
1: awesome awesome now
0: how do you translate or how do you feel because I know you teach these kinds of courses you just talked about the one you got coming up but what led you into not only just kind of being your basic communications professor and just teaching PR or just teaching speech or just teaching you know how to examine you know speech rhetoric or however you want to say it why would you or why did you take the course to where you wanted to talk about Disney and films and the impact on that and rhetorical criticism and the impact of these monuments and race in the south how do you go from being a communications professor to then diving deeper into those type of subjects and how does that make you feel talking about those uncomfortable subjects
1: well it's actually been quite a long journey Uh in my master's program i was taking a class with dr gray matthews who's at memphis right now and he had studied with tom benson who I studied under at Penn State. So first I studied under the student, then I went and studied under the master. Okay. And he had a list of books because it was a rhetoric and community class. And he said, I want everyone in here to pick one of these books, read it, and then write a paper about how does this construct community? How does this rhetorically build community? Okay. And honestly, the I read the list and none of the titles sounded in any way interesting to me. <laughs> and so I went to him and said, I have an idea. I'd like to write about the Sneetches by Dr. Seuss. Hmm. And this was for, uh, I think, a 10 to 15 page paper. Wow. And he said you think you can pull that off? (laughs) I said, yeah, I think I can. (laughs) He said, all right, do it. That was the moment that I realized I could do serious academic work on texts that weren't the normal prescribed Mm -hmm. speeches by Lincoln and George Washington and John F. Kennedy. I could do something that was not the norm Uh because at the time i was a storyteller at a bookstore and loved that job (laughs) so once i found out i could do serious academic scholarship on this well that just kicked open a brand new door for me Mm. so it started with the snitches and then i kept doing other dr seuss books and looking as at dr seuss as a cultural pedagogue and how he would teach kids culture Mm -hmm. not just a lesson not just a moral but how to be kids or to as kenneth burke said he called literature equipment for living Mm -hmm. and i can't imagine a body of books that more fit that title than children's literature because it is literally equipment for living Mm -hmm. and then the books led into movies i had always been a fan of disney and the first paper i ever presented at a conference back in 2002 was on disney's gendering of snow white Uh where i looked at what changes did disney make to how snow white was represented when compared to the original Grimm version Uh and that went over well Uh so i kept doing it (laughs) and then I took a class with Tom Benson at Penn State on a rhetoric of film focusing on Hitchcock. Mm. So all we did all semester long, we watched one or two Hitchcock films per week. We'd watch it on Tuesday, and we would discuss it on Thursday so we were bringing in ideas of the auteur we were bringing in ideas of the sexist gauge and the the use of gender in these films the use of power in these films the use of rhetoric in these films and so the entire class was mapped out in a way to take this one director and take a body of his work and slowly, but meticulously pick them apart. Uh All right. So how do we figure out rope? How do we figure out North by Northwest? How do we figure out psycho? And then we'd take a step back and all right, so what does this help us do generally? So then when I ended up in Montgomery, i had the opportunity to build a class the way i wanted to build it and so i built one doing just what dr benson had done but instead of hitchcock i focused on walt disney
0: yeah
1: so same idea same structure for the class having a reading and one film every single week that we would watch collectively and then pick apart for how does culture how did culture of the time influence this how does this influence culture how to remix influence culture and there's just so many ways to play with these ideas and there is a book that i want to write on disney film okay. picking each one apart rhetorically mm-hmm. i just have to find the time to do it
0: gotcha gotcha and that that disney that disney class is my favorite class i've ever taken without a doubt again the the way you challenged you know let's really have a discussion about this film and everything was always cordial we never gotten any arguments or anything crazy like right. that but it was always kind of you pushing the button on okay let's talk about what's really here like let's not mm-hmm. ignore uncle remus was one where i remember we watched and you were right, very very South. open about okay let's talk about what's going on here and let's talk about the aspect of where this film is in time when it was made what it's depicting let's talk about this how does this make us feel and that kind of stuff just stuck with me man that you allowed us the vehicle to have those discussions in class and that discourse in class, which is helpful for everyone. You know, I know a lot of people like to shy away from those conversations and not talk about that kind of stuff, but I think those classes really, really, really helped. So it's it's crazy that you took that idea from, my God, I would have loved to have been in that Hitchcock class, but you took that and you flipped it and you, and you put it on Disney because there's so much there and there was so much there and there's so many films that we watched that we broke down, and that stuff was there that I didn't know was there before, and I realized, and I saw stuff from a different perspective that somebody may have not had that was mine. So all that stuff's enlightening, and I think you really did. You probably don't even realize at the time how many buttons you pushed in our minds. (laughs) That was good for us, but it was definitely good for us, man, and I just really, really appreciated that you did that.
1: Well, that was part of the learning outcomes Mm -hmm. I mean the class wasn't just let's hang out and watch some Disney films right because number one I couldn't get away with that (laughs) (laughs) and number two if that's all there was to it they wouldn't need me right so i needed to bring something different something unique and bringing in that idea of persuasion and all right so how does the lion king being all about an eastern religion for a western audience Mm -hmm. how does this work right and how are the racial lines of stay where the light is don't go where the dark is Mm and all the characters in the dark lands have ethnic voices and mm-hmm. all of these things once you notice they're there you can't unsee them right right <laughs> for sure for sure but they're important things to to recognize and talk about mm-hmm. i agree 100 um for
0: my listeners that don't know what does it mean when you rhetorically analyze something? So, for instance, let's say this rhetorical criticism class, which was maybe my most challenging class, what do you look to get across in a class like that?
1: Well, I think first you have to define rhetoric because, especially around election times, like the election we had today across Alabama and all Mm -hmm. the other states, the term rhetoric gets thrown around as a negative buzzword right where if you don't like what somebody's saying oh that's just their rhetoric Mm -hmm. where that's not actually true (laughs) right and one unique thing about rhetoric is if you get 100 rhetoricians in a room you're going to get 120 different definitions of rhetoric so, there is no one accepted definition that works always. Mm-hmm. But if you want to go for an ancient definition that gets to the very core of it, Aristotle said, a rhetoric, the sum and substance of which is persuasion. Mm-hmm. So, what we do in a rhetorical criticism class is we look at text. So, anything created by a human, whether it's a speech, A commercial a Disney film uh, a billboard whatever it may be we look at that text and say all right what does this do not what does this mean but what does this do how does this influence an observer how does this influence an audience when you look at a billboard How does that influence people that are driving by Mm -hmm. when you look at a tattoo? How does that influence you as to how you're going to interact with this person? Right. Everything that is created by a human is somehow rhetorical, meaning that there is some persuasive purpose behind it. So in the rhetorical criticism class, and this is where I have the most fun once you get a few basic methods down to where you understand how to approach a text, you can really look at anything you want to look at. So I can teach a Disney class. That's a rhetoric class and it works. I can teach a class on public memory and it works. When I was in Montgomery, I taught a, I taught a few different special topics with, you know, two or three students. I taught a first amendment rhetoric class. I taught a speeches of MLK junior with, I think, three students. And as when I was in central Arkansas, I actually taught a independent study with two students where we did World War II war rhetoric, looking at speeches by Churchill, FDR and Hitler. And we looked at early speeches and we looked at later speeches and i remember the student who was doing the early hitler speeches came up to me one day and said so i read a few of hitler's 1933 speeches i totally would have voted for hitler Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because he was so persuasive right And really, if you look at those speeches, you can take out Nuremberg and put in Des Moines, Iowa, and it's exactly what you would have heard over here. Mm -hmm. So that's part of what I love about rhetoric. I can study whatever I want, as long (laughs) as I can justify it as being worth the time and the intellectual curiosity
0: you know now that i think about it i can blame you for me getting fussed at by my wife when i'm just we're just watching something on tv or we just see a commercial or we see a sign or we see a painting and i'm always going third fourth fifth sixth seventh level trying to figure out what's going on there i can just blame you from now because you you exactly what you described is exactly what i do especially when i'm watching movies and film i mean i can't I can't just watch a movie for what's on the surface. I can't do that. You definitely made me rotten that way to where I look at films and I'm really looking behind the scenes and trying to figure out what the director and the producer and the screenwriters is really trying to get across and the dialogue and the script. It's just, it's crazy. I drive myself insane with it most of the time, but I really, really get my wife with it because she's like, will you just shut up? I'm just trying to watch the movie. I'm not trying to talk about all that. So now when that happens, I'm going to blame it on you.
1: Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. But that's one thing that, regardless of what class you take with me, whether it's called a rhetoric class or not, everything I teach is somehow connected to critical thinking. Yep, it is. Every single class. So whether it's about public memory or it's about disney film or mlk or whatever it may be the end product is having you be a more critical consumer Mm -hmm. by that i mean a consumer of products so consumer of ideas a consumer of culture a consumer of politics a consumer of society to where you can look at anything and ask questions about why is this the way that it is. Yeah.
0: And that's that's, that's crucial, man. I really do think uh, again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to throw you some some love on that one. I appreciate that because I feel like that's made me a part of who I am is how I look at things that way and that's 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 all you. So there's another notch there I don't know how good or bad that makes you feel but I'll give you another nod on that that you definitely you definitely brought that out of me man so I appreciate you again on that talk to me a little bit about this class you got coming up the public memory class talk to me a little bit about that what what came Our, about on this what brought this about and, and and what are you looking to get done in that class
1: about twelve years ago there was a conference in Memphis Tennessee where I'm from mm-hmm. And I was asked by uh, some friends of mine who were at the University of Memphis. They were going to put write papers about the Nathan Bedford Forest statue that used to be over Forest's grave in Forest Park in downtown Memphis. Mm -hmm. And they invited me to join in, write a paper, and we got uh, Michael Osborne, who used to teach at the University of Memphis and a brilliant man in the field. He actually was at Martin Luther King Jr's last speech in Mm -hmm. Memphis. And has written about it. So he's an incredible person to know. But we put together this panel. And so I started looking at how is the local media setting up this controversy over Forrest. Because it really started in the late 90s with people saying we need to take this statue down. It doesn't represent us anymore. Mm -hmm. And so there would be this annual protest that would happen downtown. So I started researching it and writing about it. And I had taken a class at Penn State on public memory. So I had read a few books, just enough to give me some of the language and some of that critical eye. But I figured out there has to be more to it Mm -hmm. than this. This isn't just a grave marker. And it isn't just, did you like the guy or not? And especially Forrest, he is one of the most controversial of all the characters from the Civil War. There are all these things that highly respect him. And then all these things that go the complete opposite direction, because even though he was heralded as a world class leader of the military and the cavalry, he was also a slave trader and that's how he made most of his fortune. So the way the controversy was being publicized they would highlight different things he was the founding member of the clan he was the first grand wizard mainly because there was no one else and he said okay i'll do it (laughs) what's the most ridiculous name i could think of right and then it took a violent and very dark turn and he actually shut down the clan but not because he had a change of heart is because he couldn't control them Mm. so for every negative thing you can find for him there's somebody pushing a positive and it's just hard to get a read on so what exactly should history judge this man right on and A few years ago i had a research student for a summer and she did all of this archival research that i'm still combing through to try to publish this particular article but it made me start thinking especially as around 2017 2018 monuments started coming down Mm -hmm. And things were changing because prior to really 2000, everything was exactly where it was built. Nothing had come down unless it had been damaged somehow or was falling apart. But it was the late 20 teens where some of this removal actually was becoming a thing and I wanted to understand it. I wanted to know, all right, how do we do this? And so one way that I figured out that I can learn a lot more about it, teach it. Mm -hmm. Cause I'm going to have to read all this stuff to be able to teach that class and teach it well. Right. And if I sign up to do the class, it's going to force me to read all of this. And then all my students are going to do their research and they're going to bring it to me. And so I'm going to learn a lot out of this class. And I did. In fact, there's a paper. I'm finishing up a special edition on public memory of the Journal of Contemporary Rhetoric right now, which should be out hopefully next week. Mm. and i actually wrote two articles and then edited five others i wrote one on the pulse of public memory where i make an argument about where public memory becomes alive and actually has a living interaction with people and then i wrote another one where i theorize about how relics get imbued with public memory. Mm. So something like Marilyn Monroe's prayer book went up for auction about a year and a half ago and brought in, I think, $30,000. Jesus. (laughs) Thing is, it didn't have any extra special prayers in it. Yeah. Didn't have her name in it there was nothing that made it more valuable as a prayer book. It was only valuable because she owned it. Mm. If she hadn't owned it, it might've gotten $8. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) So I wrote an article where I'm trying to understand that. How does that happen? How can somebody make something worth a lot more money just by owning it? Mm. So I have that coming out. I'm writing another article with a student that did research for me this past summer where we look at the life cycle of monuments. And we're actually making an argument that the day a monument is first put up, it has its highest congruency with its audience. Okay. So it represents the that audience better than it ever will. Yeah, that and day. that every day after that it goes into this decay, oh. just like you would have with a an element in chemistry, something radioactive. It goes mm-hmm. into this decay. Same thing until it gets to a point where something has to happen. There has to be some catalyst. And we use a few examples of Confederate monuments that were in this decay until George Floyd Mm -hmm. or until Breonna Taylor. And then that shook up the population who then decided publicly to say statues and monuments and memorials in our town should represent our values these statues no longer represent Mm -hmm. us. Meaning that the statues still represent these ideologies of white supremacy and of trying to get back to that white position of power that they were doing in the early 1900s. So they're ideographs, but they're incongruent ideographs, because they don't mesh with the current population. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So something has to happen, it either needs to be moved or removed. Or it has to be reevaluated to say no, we actually believe this is good, which, (laughs) in some cases, that's what happens. Yeah. So Right now, I'm kind of all over the place. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah, you're working on this. a
0: lot of stuff. Glad you could squeeze me in that schedule of yours.
1: <laughs> well, my mind doesn't stop running. I just wish my fingers would catch up. Right, right, right. To get all this writing done. <laughs> sure. There's um, just so many things to explore absolutely. to talk about and i'm excited to be a part of this and i can't wait to get some more things published to see what other people think of these ideas absolutely absolutely
0: so as a as a professor as a teacher as someone who does what you do and how you do it what's the greatest joy that you get from whether it's stories from your students like myself previous students or something that you discover in the class like What's the greatest feeling that you get from broaching and teaching and exploring these topics like you do?
1: Well, I mean, it's always nice to hear from a former student to say, yeah, I actually was listening some of the time (laughs) and I'm using some of the things you taught me that, you know, always makes me feel good that I've done right right by my students. But really, the moments that I become almost giddy, at the end of most every one of my classes, the students have a final paper that they've been working on all semester long and they have to present it in front of the class. Mm -hmm. So they have to talk through what they've done with their research for that particular class. And hearing them get it. (laughs) When they're making the connections where they're saying, this theory helps me understand to figure out this. And here's something that I wouldn't have ever noticed, but because This theorist said this. It made me look at this differently. And now I can see how it's there all along. (laughs) And when students have that aha moment, even if it's they've already had it, but this is the first time that they're explaining it out loud to people. (laughs) But when a student gets it, those are my most cherished moments good good
0: good good and i'm sure you have a ton of them man if it clicked for me i'm sure it clicked for multiple other people so you absolutely correct you're putting your worth you're putting your stamp in this world i promise you we're gonna get a little bit less serious for a second okay. i just got a few questions for you on some stuff that you talked about i didn't send you any of this so i didn't have you prep for it, but i just want to see what your answers are on a few of these things What is, since you said you took an entire class on this, what is your favorite
1: Hitchcock movie? Strangers on a Train. Okay. Why is that? And part of the reason for it is there's a movie that came later that was a kind of a parody and also kind of an homage to it called Throw Mama from the Train. (laughs) which was Danny DeVito's first directing job. It had Danny DeVito and Billy Crystal as the two main characters. And the whole setup of Strangers on a Train is two guys meet on a train. They both have somebody they want out of their lives, but they can't get rid of them. And so one of the guys says well let's just crisscross I'll do your murder and you do mine that removes motive that means that we're not going to get caught Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then one the one guy who came up with it he follows through and then says all right now it's your turn (laughs) and the other guy can't do it it yeah (laughs) so in throw mama from the train they actually show Danny DeVito's character he goes to see a Hitchcock film, mm. and they show him in a theater watching Strangers on a Train, <laughs> and that's where he gets the idea for swapping the murders. Ah. But it's done as a comedy with Billy Crystal and Danny DeVito, <laughs> whereas Hitchcock was a much more serious film. Absolutely. But absolutely. that's That's my favorite because it's such a simple idea behind it. Yep that you know there are some films especially today that all right here's a heist but that would never work in reality yeah (laughs) that couldn't happen yeah this is something that could very easily happen yep
0: yep yep i think that's one of the keys to hitchcock as well is that a lot of his his horror or his thriller movies they're so grounded to where you feel like this can really happen and even the ones that you don't like the birds was actually based on something that actually happened he just put a twist on it so yeah i'm 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 a huge hitchcock fan what is your favorite disney movie
1: my really robin hood is my favorite part of that is from that's the earliest disney film i remember watching okay and i fell in love with the the animals <laughs> and i would say there's a close second of the jungle book wow oh, really those two there's actually a lot of similarities in them in both the art as well as the the storyline but they were both things that i could imagine You know even though though one is set in england and one set in india yeah my imagination after seeing those films could take me there okay (laughs) and that especially robin hood you know fighting for justice and what actually should happen fighting against this royal oppression you know there was just something so noble about that (laughs) right and mowgli being alone running through the jungle with all these dangers that was just an exciting story to watch Mm -hmm. so there's so many others that i've really enjoyed watching but robin hood and the jungle book were really my top two favorite ones now if you get into the non-fully animated or the non-animated that's other questions there. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. So next one, what is your favorite Dr. Sue story?
1: You should have a copy of this one. I think I do. <laughs> and it's one of the ones that random house stopped making yep. because there is a, there's two Asian characters or Eskimos I think, in the book, and because of the way they were depicted, Random House decided we're going to stop making this one. Yeah. And it's McElgatt's Pool. Yep, I always loved that book more so than Oh the Places You'll Go, especially for graduating seniors. Mm-hmm because i mean oh the places you'll go is nice and it's just think about all the things you can possibly do whereas the message for mckelligan's pool is just because something hasn't ever been done before doesn't mean you can't be the first Yep. and i just think that is a much more valuable lesson to give to a graduating senior <laughs> to say all right go take on the world. Yep, yep.
0: Absolutely. It is I have my signed copy on my bookshelf. <laughs> so it is it is still there and it's still with me. And that's that's some of the reason why I'm doing this podcast now. So look at you still having an impact. <laughs> what is your and this one may be a little bit tougher cuz you've done so many, but what is maybe a highlighted speech that you love taking a rhetorical kind of analysis of? Hmm. I know you got so many, you've done so many.
1: (laughs) Well, the thing is, I've actually read more critiques that I've had students do, Mm -hmm. that especially over the years and now that I teach graduate classes, I'll have every students picking apart everything from Bruce Springsteen <laughs> lyrics to oh, man. a Sojourner Truth speech. Yeah. Um, <sighs> what's
0: one that sticks out maybe then from your, you know, one, what's the one of the first ones that come to your mind
1: when you think about that then? One of the ones that i still get the hair, you know, on my arm raising and just, get i feel that electricity is listening to the parts we have of mlk juniors i've been to the mountaintop okay because that was the last speech he ever delivered and that was the one where there's all of this foreshadowing of him well arguably that he knew he was going to die Mm-hmm where he's saying, I might not get there with you, but I've been to the promised land. Right. And just the power that he held in his hand at that moment, <laughs> that's something not everybody can do.
0: Yep. Would you, would you say, and I don't know if it, it's kind of an opinion, but would you say that he is the greatest orator? Or one. I know you say you think he's one of them, but maybe that's another question for you. I know you've examined a lot of speeches and really got into detail. Who do you think is maybe the greatest orator?
1: One of my favorites overall is Winston Churchill. Yes, he's he's up there. Yep, because he actually studied rhetoric Mm -hmm. he studied speeches and elocution and he was a tremendous writer and a great thinker even though he spent most of his time drinking and (laughs) smoking (laughs) cuban cigars he was an incredibly eloquent speaker Mm -hmm. to where there's a lot of people like you can think about jfk Mm -hmm. all right he had he had a couple of really big speeches you know ask not what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country but then what you got there were only a few of those that he had yeah whereas churchill just like mlk jr you can say all right well what about this speech well what about this one mm-hmm. what about be ye men of valor Okay. what about all these others that have just incredible lines I mean he basically argued England into joining World War II by saying if we don't England dies right and he did so convincingly enough they entered the war which yeah. is what needed mm-hmm. to happen yeah but they weren't sold on it until he said it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Well, Doc, you know, I appreciate your time, man. Uh, normally I like to ask, or kind of a prevailing thought at the end, I like to ask my guests, well, what's next? Well, you've already kind of talked about what's next for you and what you like to get done and what you want to get done in the future. Um, I guess I would just kind of open it up to you. What's what's one lasting thing you like to leave my listeners with or a prevailing thought you like to leave them with about you or about what you do or about what you're trying to do?
1: Oh, no pressure there. <laughs> Actually the, the, I guess if there's one bit of advice I can give to anybody, just never stop questioning things. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Cause that's really the root of having a, a strong mind. Asking questions, asking more questions, asking better questions. Why is the world the way that it is? Yeah. Not accepting anything just on its face or because somebody else said so. Mm-hmm. Ask questions and ask questions about everything.
0: Yep, yeah. awesome advice, man. Awesome. That hit. That hits me for sure. Awesome. Well, dot. Where can if somebody's interested uh do you have your work where they can find it online where it's published is there a way where we can find your work or find some of the papers
1: you've written um actually that's something I am I have a friend of mine working on okay. for me okay the problem is there's a lot of people named John Saunders <laughs> so johnsaunders.com, drjohnsaunders.com, dot com dr johnsaunders dot com john okay. Saunders phd already already All taken. taken
0: yeah <laughs> Even
1: with, so even with the spelling of your name, too?
0: Even with the what? U in there? Yeah. Really? I know there would be a ton with the S-A-N, but I didn't know. You have the U in the last name, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Just like the gone. John
1: Saunders that used to be an announcer for ESPN. That's right. <laughs> I didn't even think about that one. <laughs> well, and there's there- another John Saunders in England who it's his entire job to go through old law books and write up bills to remove old laws, (laughs) which I think is just fascinating. Yeah, it is. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) (laughs) But right now I'm University of Alabama in Huntsville. Yep. If they go to the website and type in my name, they'll find me. And if anybody has questions, email me. I'd okay. be happy to talk to. Well, I'll talk to anybody. <laughs> right,
0: right, right. Now, if you get a barrage of emails, don't get mad every now. So, <laughs> Dr. Again, Dr. Saunders, man. Uh, you know, like I said, I want to close out by saying again how much you have impacted me. Not only on an educational level, but like you said, in my in my personal life, with asking those questions and asking the why, and never being satisfied with just what I'm getting. I truly hope that you know from me. How impactful you've been on my career my path and my life and what i do and even as far as with this podcast this is all something that you that you inspired and brought out of me as well and i'll give you the full credit for that so i i appreciate you coming on i, I value your time thank you for fitting me in your busy schedule i know it took us a minute to get this one together but i appreciate you coming on doc
1: and i can't wait to share it on my social media once we once you get it all put together and polished and all that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, God bless you, man. Well, I appreciate you. Okay. Want to send a special thanks again to Dr. Saunders for coming through and giving me so much of his time. He's got so much on his schedule, so much that he's trying to do so many things that he's trying to accomplish. Best wishes to him. Godspeed to that man. Uh, He's done so much for me and just kind of building my confidence, uh, shaping me, Into the communications person that you see today, whether you think it's how well I talk or how well I present, all that can be circled back to Dr. John Saunders. So big ups to him. Best wishes to him in the future. I know he will continue to do impactful things in this world. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, share with your friends and family. Leave us a five star review. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please hit me up at cerebralchaospod at gmail.com. I love to hear your thoughts. Love to hear your opinions. On some things that you want to hear, some guests that you like to hear. But you know how we do, Chaos Family. See you next week. God bless you and God bless Chaos.